So Isaiah chapter 11. Before I start, let's just pray. Yeah, maybe just open up your hands. Sort of a posture saying, God, I want to receive from you. Lord Jesus, we say thank you to you that you're interested in us. Thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that today we don't come to some idol, but we come to the living God who wants to commune and speak to his children. And so we come with an openness. We say, God, would you soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Would you give revelation? We say we want to be changed by your word. Holy Spirit, come be amongst us ever so powerfully working. Unlock the scriptures to us, we pray. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 11, the title of this sermon is Finding Hope in the Darkness. On the 28th of August 1963, on the steps of Lincoln Memorial, Washington, D.C., before a crowd of some 250,000 civil rights activists, Martin Luther King Jr. stood up and gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. We're just going to see a little clip of it now. But one day... This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream It's an amazing speech. Thoroughly recommend you watch it all. But Martin Luther uh, King Jr.'s speech has been described as one of the greatest speeches ever. He was eloquent. He was poetic. However, more than that, he cast a vision of what America could be against a backdrop of black exclusion and segregation. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech connects with something within us all, this deep desire, this deep longing that says things are not as they should be and believes and dreams for a better future. It is that longing that says surely things should be better than this, whilst being all too aware of the situations that people find themselves in. Martin Luther King's speech awakens that longing in us, the recognition that things are not as they should be, and a hope for things to be better. As Christians, God's given us wonderful future promises. How are we to find hope in them when there is tension between the, the promises that are given and our current circumstances? And the Bible's honest about this tension. The psalmist cries out often again and again, How long, O oh God? The psalmist complains that God's not yet fulfilled his promises. How long? And today I believe Isaiah chapter 11 will help us think about how to live in the tension of the now and the not yet. The tension between the wonderful future promises God's given us and our current situations. You see, Isaiah wrote to a people living in tension. There were glorious promises for the future. 
but the situation in Judea was bleak. It was about 734 BC. King Ahaz was still reigning as king. And don't you remember, do you remember we did that little drama a few weeks ago? There might be a little map. So what you had was you had Abi representing Judah, King Ahaz, uh, and surrounding was, uh, was Israel and Syria, who had formed an alliance and wanted to attack them. Then there was the superpower Assyria, uh, which was Peter sort of strutting his stuff, who wanted to take, take over and was pushing forward and was likely to crush Judea. And you had King Ahaz in this thing of tension going, what should I do? And in the end, instead of trusting God to protect him, he goes and forms a political alliance uh, with Assyria to try and protect them. So pressure's mounting. Assyria is threatening. And God speaks to Judea and speaks to King Ahaz through Isaiah. He says that Assyria will come. They will destroy Israel. They will destroy Syria. He says they will invade Judah and devastate it, but will not destroy Jerusalem. Isaiah also prophesied that at some point in the future, the people of Judah would be taken into exile. And this took place in the Babylonian Babylonian invasion uh, of Judah, It's sort of 590 BC, so about 140 years later. Yet, God promises through the name of one of Isaiah's sons that a remnant will return from exile. In Isaiah, the remnant is an important concept. The remnant are a people who remain faithful to God and continue to trust him whilst the king and the majority of the people are failing to trust or follow him. So the people of Judah have promises spoken over them. They were the house of the king of David. God had spoken to King David saying, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And it's into that context that Isaiah is prophesying. The situation was bleak. The people of Judah were already under pressure. Isaiah prophesied that it was gonna get worse that at some point they were going to be exiled. Yet at the same time, there was this future hope and remarkable promises that the prophet Isaiah brought. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and she would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Through the birth of this child, it would be evident that God was among his people. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read about a light shining upon a people walking in darkness. The light that comes is actually a promised child who will set God's people free and reign on David's throne. Matthew in his gospel quotes both of these passages and applies them to Jesus and says, when Jesus came, he fulfilled these prophetic promises. And for those of us who are Christians, we live in the good of these prophetic promises. Jesus has fulfilled these promises. We read these verses at Christmas and we celebrate. We say, yes, Jesus came. He came and rescued his people. However, for the remnant, for those who are living under pressure in Jerusalem, faithful to God, these were future promises, future hopes. They were promises of a better future whilst they were still living in the dark, under pressure, in pain. You see, these people lived in the tension of the now and the not yet. The not yet was the promise of a saviour who was coming who would rescue his people. 
the not yet was a light would shine upon a people walking in darkness. The now was that they were living under pressure on all sides in poverty with a king who had turned away from the living God. And the question is, how did they live in the light of the future promises and faithful to that whilst recognizing the current situations they were in? The people were called to find hope in the darkness. The promise seemed distant. But God's call to his people was to find hope in the promise that had been given. And we're going to return to this theme. I mean, the main theme, really, if you have of this talk today is, how do we live in the now and the not yet of God's promises? And it's a key that we learn to do this if we're going to follow Jesus uh, in 21st century Britain. Because we always have that tension point. So let's look at the third prophetic word about the coming of a saviour in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet speaks to his people in desperation, into a kingdom that's broken, and he says this. Seems a bit obscure. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So there's two things to describe this prophesied saviour of Isaiah 7 and 9. Two more things. One, he's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Secondly, a branch from his roots. Actually, that's shortened in verse 10 to the root of Jesse. So what do these phrases mean about the stump, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and the root of Jesse? The house of David looked devastated. It's broken. It's been cut down. It's just this stump. But then a shoot shall emerge from this stump. King Ahaz was faithless. Even though he's a king of Judah, he shows no evidence of being a king like King David. In fact, even the best kings in Judah uh, just didn't reflect what King David was like. Then Isaiah prophesies, and he says that from the stump of Jesse, a shoot emerges. From seeming death and rottenness, life emerges. But why the stump of Jesse? It's a bit random, isn't it? Because King David's father was Jesse. Isaiah is prophesying that when Jesse produces a shoot, it will be another King David. It will be another King David. As it says in Isaiah 9, it talks about the son being born who will reign on David's throne. Isaiah here in prophesying in Isaiah chapter 11 is saying he will come and he's going to be the new King David who fulfills the promises and reigns on David's throne and fulfills the promises of this everlasting kingdom with this king who reigns with justice and righteousness forever. And then you've got this strange phrase. He's also the root of Jesse. The prophesied saviour will be a shoot and a root. In verse 10, it's root of Jesse. What does it mean? Roots are the source of the stump. A tree depends on roots for their growth. This coming saviour is the root of Jesse's stump. In other words, he's the source of Jesse. He's the source of King David. He's the one who's actually before them that Jesse and David come from because he came from before them. In other words, he's the king, David, the new King David, who will fulfill the promises spoken to David. He is also the one who was before Jesse and before David, like this remarkable saviour. 
And we see in John 1 how Jesus fulfilled this. Jesus is described in John 1 as the Word of God. And it says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was at the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, he's the source of all things. He's the source of Jesse. He's the source of David. He's the source of all things. But also, it says in John's Gospel, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, born of the line of King David. He was a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's remarkable, isn't it? He fulfills both these things and how Jesus so clearly is the new King David, but also he was before David. He was one who existed for things that all things were created through him. Isaiah then causes us to lift up our eyes and see the wonderful character of the root of Jesse and to celebrate this coming saviour. So what's he like? We read this in verses 2 to 5. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. God is speaking to a people whose king has proved faithless, who is corrupt, King Ahaz was anointed as king, but it was clear the spirit of God was not upon him. He had rejected God's wisdom, and instead of standing in awe of God and following him, he had put his trust in political alliances. The prophets again and again speak against the kings of Israel and Judah, saying, you don't care for the poor, you deprive them of justice, you are not acting in righteousness. And then Isaiah is saying to us, this coming one, this coming one, he'll be different to the other kings and rulers. He will rule with righteousness. He will judge rightly. He will care for the poor. Every heart, I want to put it to you, every heart longs for such a leader. In the UK at the moment, obviously, the election's just gone past. We're in the midst of Brexit, and there's this confusion. Partly the question we have is, what kind of leaders do we have? We long for leaders like this one prophesied about. And the Bible is telling us that Jesus, our saviour, is that leader. He is the leader who's anointed with God's spirit and leads in perfect righteousness. He is the king born in a manger, lord of all but servant of all, the righteous one but friend of sinners. The Bible teaches that Jesus' birth and the promises of future hope were being fulfilled. The new king had arrived, Isaiah 7 and 9 tell us. Isaiah 53 prophesied that his kingship was going to be established through his suffering and his death on a cross. But through his death and resurrection, he destroyed the enemies of death, sin, shame, and Satan. It flung wide open the gates of heaven. Therefore, in the New Testament, we read that anyone 
who believes in him will not be put to shame. We read those famous words in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world uh, to judge the world but to save the world, condemn the world but to save the world through him. The door to know God has been flung open. These are the days the Bible calls the year of the Lord's favor. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and turn to him. Yet there's a future promise that is still to be fulfilled. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah prophesies about the birth of this coming saviour. In Isaiah 11, we see the actualization of his reign on earth. In New Testament terms, in Isaiah 9, we see that fulfilled in Jesus' incarnation and him coming as a baby born of the Virgin Mary, living amongst us. In Isaiah 11, we see that fulfilled in the second advent, in his coming again and making all things new. At the present, we live in the now and not yet. Jesus has conquered death, sin and shame and Satan at the cross, but Jesus' rule and reign is yet to be fully seen or realized, and it will only be fully seen when he returns again at the second advent. And Isaiah speaks poetically and prophetically about this future age when Jesus' reign will be fully realized. These beautiful verses, verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. And a cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Isaiah paints a glorious picture of restoration, an image that brings us back to the Garden of Eden. There's harmony, there's safety, there's peace. Moreover, his rule will not be confined just to Judah, but will be experienced across the earth. As Habakkuk prophesied, the earth will be full of the glory of God as the water covers the sea. There's hope for the future, but there's also hope for the nations of the world. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Isaiah continues in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This promised saviour did not just come to save the people of Judah, and Israel, he came to rescue people from all nations. Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, describes him as a light to the nations. And we read in Isaiah 2, a beautiful prophetic picture of a future day when other nations would come. We, let me read this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations, all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And then it talks about people taking their swords uh, and beating them into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and there being peace amongst the nations. 
It's a remarkable prophetic people picture of people from tr- all tribes, tongues, nations coming towards this God who is just, uh, with salvation found in this Savior. John Ortberg describes what this prophetic vision looks like in more contemporary terms, which may help bring it to life for us. Let me just read it for us, if I can find it. Here we go. Neil Plattinger notes that the Hebrew prophets had a word for a connectedness of all things, where all things were in order. Shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Try to imagine the old prophets told people then and tell us still what such a state of affairs would look like. In a world where shalom prevailed, all marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. Their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. Wives who give birth and wives who give birth to their husband's children. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would be still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. <laughs> Doors would have no locks. Police, uh, cars would have no alarms. Schools would have no longer need for police presence or even hall monitors. Students and teachers and janitors would honour and value one another's work. At recess, every kid would get picked for a team. No, children would churches would never split. Sorry. People would neither be bored nor hurried. No father would ever again say, "I'm too busy." To a disappointed child, our national sleep deficit would be paid off. Starbucks would still exist, but would sell only decaf. Divorce courts and battered women shelters would be turned into community recreation centres. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would honour and be enriched by their differences, and be united in their common humanity. And in the centre of this community would be its magnificent architecture and most holy, glorious resident, the God whose presence fills each person with unceasing splendour and ever-increasing delight. The writers of scripture tell us that this vision is the way things are supposed to be. This is what it would look like if we lived up to the norms God set for human life. If our world were truly normal, one day it will be. It's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, I think that modern twist of what it would look like if we truly did see some of these things. So there's this wonderful future hope that is painted in Isaiah chapter 11. But the trouble is, there's this tension that we don't live in that place, do we? We live in the situation where we live in a broken world, where there are lots of difficulties we face. We don't live in a world where everything's in sync, where there's wholeness and shalom the whole time. We live in the tension of the now and not yet. 
there's that disconnect between what we see in the scriptures about the future and what we're living now. Jesus won a victory at the cross, and that victory we fully realize when he returns again. But until then, we're living in a world marred with the effects of sin. So I don't think I've experienced much suffering. I don't think I've, but for me, in the last few years, there's still that disconnect. So for my sister, she spent the last five years with uh, pancreatitis. And it's just been debilitating. She's just parenting's been difficult. She had an operation just a month ago, uh, and it didn't go really quite according to plan. There were complications. She's got another one coming up this next month. But still, she's been living in discomfort, really not being able to parent like she would or just get on with life as she would. Now, I realize other people have it far worse, but you look at it and you go, that's not what Isaiah 11 teaches on. I had a joy planting a church in Istanbul. It was such a blast. But it didn't come without some pain. So we did two years just of language and culture learning. Then we did two years of planting a church. And it was great. And then, but there were a few tension points. In particular, there was a tension point between particularly me and another person about the vision of where we were going. And also there ended up being a bit of a relational tension then. And at the end of the two-year period, we decided that with our blessing, that it would make sense for them to go and start something new. And actually, we had 20 people from our church of 35 leave that summer to start this new work. And it was so painful. And I, take some, I do take responsibility for that. I was the leader of a church congregation, so there's culpability with me. But I, everything in me said, that's not what Isaiah 11 says. That's not how it should be. Christians, we should be better than that. We shouldn't have churches that split. But it was the reality, and it was painful. And at the end of the four years, I'd gone, I'm exhausted, and we've got to start planting a church again. And it was painful. So we've come back to the UK this summer. And this time last year, if you've spoken to me, I would have said, no, we're going to be here long term in Turkey. We are going to stay here unless we get kicked out. But we're back, and the ma a major factor in that is our children's education and the fact they've got some needs that just couldn't be met in Turkey. And you, two of our children are really struggling in school in the UK in terms of it's not an area which is easy for them to succeed in. They struggle. It's a difficulty. And you go, it's hard. There's a disconnect between when I read Isaiah 11 or Revelation 21 and what we live in. And I'm aware in our church, that's just me and my life. I'm aware in our church community, there are people with long-term mental health issues. There are people with long-term physical health issues. There are people with marriages that are difficult, financial tensions. Some of you are just lonely. How do we live with the tension of what is promised and what we experience? I just want to suggest... Uh, just some practical ways we can do that. Firstly, we look back. We look back and remember that he has kept his promises. He fulfilled his promises to the remnant. They didn't see it, but he fulfilled the promises in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, which they never saw fulfilled. But the Savior did come. If he fulfilled those promises, he will also fulfill the promise of Isaiah 11. We look to the fact God is faithful to his promises and he's good. We look back and remember how he's worked in our lives. So that summer after there'd been the church split and there were 15 of us left, in Turkey in the summer, 
in Turkey in the summer, churches really get very small because everyone disappears off. So there was one Sunday where there were seven people on a Sunday. I mean, smaller than your normal small group probably here or life group here. Anyway, someone in our church had received a prophetic word that summer from their home church saying, in the coming year, you will see 10 people dance. There was a picture of 10 people dancing into the church. Uh, and finding new life, and finding community. Anyway, my friend of this congregation of seven was sharing this prophetic word. And obviously it felt a bit of a joke at the time, really. You've got six, of them in, six, seven of them in this room sharing this prophetic word, about ten more people coming. Anyway, sharing this word, halfway through the meeting, while she's sharing this word, a visitor comes in. Then another visitor. Another visitor. And actually, by the end of the service, there were 13 of them. Six visitors had turned up who we'd never met before. They just appeared in our congregation. Three of them remained in our congregation and put their faith in Jesus over that next year. We had the joy of seeing six people, I think, baptized that year, and others put their faith in And it was a remarkable thing. And by the end of this, that next year, actually, we were kind of the same number that we were before this group had gone without any of the relational tensions. And it was a joy, but it was painful. But at the same time, you saw how God had worked. I think with us leaving and coming back to the UK, that's a processing piece of work for us. Even that, but we've seen how God has been so faithful and good to us. So we look at the fact on my last Sunday in Turkey, I had the privilege, I'd met this guy called Ferhat, who'd come along to our church, mainly because he wanted to become a Christian, so that if he became a Christian, he thought he'd be able to escape Turkey and get a visa for a European country. And I said to him, no, no, that's not how it works. We can't do that, but I can tell you about Jesus. And for the next two months, we spent a lot of time talking about Jesus. And our last Sunday at church, had the privilege of bringing, praying with him to put his faith in Jesus. So you see these small tokens of, God, you're very good and very kind as a way to finish. Uh, you go, we've come back to Kingston, and we haven't had to push for jobs, uh, for jobs. We haven't had to push for schools for our children, but they're falling into place. Samuel's found a school that is, I think, going to really meet his needs. And we just see God's favor on that, coming back and actually being able to start serving in this church, which I know and love, and that's a privilege. So in the midst of difficulty, I honestly feel like in this season I can say, actually God's given really wonderful boundary lines in our lives, and I see how he's worked in our situation, and actually for us even coming back, God was very gracious and gave us a couple of very specific prophetic words that allowed us to go, okay, no, we think it is the time to come back, and we feel that God's speaking. So we look back, even though we don't see the answer to all this stuff, we look back to the stuff we have seen an answer. Secondly, so we look back at his promises uh, that he has fulfilled. We look back to how he's worked in our lives. It says in Revelation 12, they overcome. This is talking about Christians. They overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Secondly, we look up. We look up and we remember who our Savior is. We lift our eyes up and remember that God is good and he is loving We remember that our Savior leads with righteousness and justice. We remember that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we look up and remember, no, he is a good Savior. He's trustworthy. And finally, we look forward. So we look back, we look up, and we look forward. And we look forward and cling to his promise of a glorious future. We choose to remember his promises of a future hope. Some things we will not understand. Sometimes with tears and pain, all we'll be able to say is, 
there is a better day coming. We look to the promises of Isaiah chapter 11 or Revelation 21, which talks of the restored and new heavens and the earth, where we read this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We're to find hope in the darkness and in the pain, knowing that he who promised is faithful, and he will fulfill the promises he's made. So we live in this tension of the now and the not yet. But we're not just to bunker down and go, let's wait for Jesus to restore things. We're to live and be bringers of God's love, God's light, God's goodness in the here and now. We're to pull in and bring some of the Isaiah 11 picture into our current world. We are called to be lights of the world. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the wonder is the Spirit of God dwells in you. That means wherever you go, wherever you go, you carry the presence of God and you can make a difference. There's good works he's prepared in advance for you to do to bring his peace, joy, love, and gospel. And just say as a church, I just want to highlight a few things that show this. So Rachel Donnett from our church has just agreed to be the coordinator of our work with the Joel Community Project. So in the coming months, once again, King's Church will be able to help serve maybe once a month in the night shelter for homeless people to serve those who need help. And we can get involved in that. We've got Pete and Janine Wilson serving with Restored, this charity which helps support victims of abuse and also trains and equips churches uh, to be better at supporting those who are in abusive relationships and helping, helping them and equipping churches to serve them better. We've got, I had the privilege of being at the Elderbreeze Christmas lunch a week or so ago, and it was wonderful being in this context with about 25 of us, I guess there were, and it was this lovely meal, and you go, actually, we're serving the older people of the community, some who by nature, often would probably be quite lonely, but they've found some community in a group that shows them love and cares for them. And it's a beautiful thing, and it's the kind of thing that reflects something small of Isaiah 11. You've got Anne and Dana Harris, who were a part of this church for 10 years, just moved on, who were just starting fostering with the view of going, yeah, there are some children who come from really difficult circumstances who need a loving, caring family, and look, we can provide that. So we're to be those who bring the light. Jesus said this to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's interesting, he didn't say you were to be the light of the world. He didn't say try to be a light. He said you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world because God's spirit lives in you. So wherever you go, you do shine that light. We're to be that. This Christmas, let's be those who bring light into darkness peace into stressful family situations, and God's joy. Let's be those who share a reason for the hope we have, because the greatest enemies of sin, death, Satan, have been destroyed, and we know that one day there will be restoration of all things. Just say, if you're here today looking and wondering about Christianity, we're so glad you're here. 
And I've been obviously talking about this longing for things to be better, things to be as they should be. And the question is, why do we have that longing in our heart? Why do we? Ha- it seems like there's this intrinsic thing that we have this longing for things to be better. But why? C.S. Lewis, the author of Narnia, expl- the Narnia books, explains it like this: If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The desires that spring up in us, those for love, safety, security, belonging, world peace, are never truly satisfied here in this life. They are in part, of course they are. Rather, they're pointers to another place, towards the heavenly home for which we were created. As the word writer of Ecclesiastes said, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the invitation for you if you're exploring is come to Jesus, the saviour that Isaiah prophesied about. Jesus said to people wanting to find out more about him, come and see. I'd urge you to come, see, explore. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a really turning point of history. It's a separation between B.C. and A.D. It may be for some of you that you have explored Christianity for a long time, and actually today is the opportunity for you to put your faith and say, no, I'm going to follow and put my trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, the call for again for us is today to anew put our trust in him. In the midst of the now and the not yet, in the pain and the darkness, and the unanswered questions, there is a call to trust Jesus, know that he is good and faithful and will one day restore all things. But there's also a call for action. You are the light of the world. You are carriers of God's presence. And let's be those who bring God's kingdom's light, joy, peace, justice. Know that he's sending you into the world to do good works he's prepared in advance for you to do. Can I pray? Can you just come up, Ross? Brilliant. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for future hope. I want to thank you for a saviour who's come. But thank you for future hope. Thank you that one day you will restore all things. Lord Jesus, I pray, would you help us live well in the tension of the now and the not yet? We want to trust you. God, we want to see more and more your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want to see a breakthrough of some of those things that John Ortberg uh, picture took, uh, talked about in our lives, in our church, in our community. We long to see your light shine. And we say, God, this Christmas, let your light shine through us. And would you shine upon us? In Jesus' name, amen.